Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hello there. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Well, Gene, it's our first Thanksgiving week, so I thought we should gobble up, sorry, something light and lively for the holiday season. And that's a very fun interview I have with John Mendez, the CIA's former chief of costumes, or more properly, disguises used by agency spies to move around undetected in hostile territory. But Eugene have kind of a nervy story of your own this week. Tell us about it. It is a mystery, a mystery that's still unsolved after 20 years. It involves the deployment of a Department of Energy nuclear emergency search team, DOE's equivalent of Delta Force, or SEAL Team 6. This team was actually sent and deployed in the fall of 2001 to New York City, to Manhattan, to search for um, the possibility that Al-Qaeda had a stolen nuclear device in Manhattan. And this plot, um, the, the U.S. government didn't tell the New York City government at the time. No one ever told Rudy Giuliani, the mayor at the time, that there was this, uh, there was this plot, that there was this secret team searching for a nuclear device in New York City. Um, and um, it, it, this didn't come out in, for a couple of years. Um, and Did they uh, ever find one? Well, so we don't think so. That was historian and journalist Garrett Graff, who says even now officials are so tight-lipped about the incident that his new piece of work, Dragonfire, is what he calls speculative nonfiction. That's coming up a bit later. Meantime, I'm guessing that most Spy Talk listeners remember Argo, the thrilling 2012 movie about the real-life CIA extradition of a half-dozen U.S. diplomats from revolutionary Iran. That was back in January 1980. Now, here's a clip of the Secretary of State skeptically questioning the CIA's Tony Mendez, played by Ben Affleck, about his plan to move the diplomats from their hiding place in Tehran to the airport by disguising them as a movie crew who've been casing the city for a science fiction flick. A very bizarre science fiction flick, Vance says. Aliens and robots? Yes, sir. You're telling me that there is a movie company in Hollywood right now that is funded by the CIA? Yes, sir. What's wrong with the bikes again? We tried to get the message upstairs. You think... You think this is more plausible than teachers? Yes, we do. One, there are no more foreign teachers in Iran. And we think everybody knows Hollywood people. And everybody knows they'd shoot in Stalingrad with Paul Pot directing if it would sell tickets. There are only bad options. It's about finding the best one. You don't have a better bad idea than this? This is the best bad idea we have, sir. By far. Well, as we all know, the best bad idea worked. And lo and behold, Tony went on to marry another equally imaginative CIA officer who was specializing in the covert arts, in particular disguises. In fact, when she retired, she was the chief of that magic section. And she's here with us today. 
Jana Mendez, welcome to Spy Talk. You are a legend, of course. And I want to hear one of your legendary stories once again, because it's so great. So you went into an Oval Office meeting with President H.W. Bush. Tell us about it. George H.W. Bush. And this was this was really at the very um, approaching the end of my career. And and it was uh, kind of a, a wonderful exclamation point for me because we had spent maybe 10 years developing, prototyping, testing uh, a new disguise scenario and a new disguise product. And that was an animated mask. We had made masks for years prior. They were called SAMs, S-A-Ms. They were semi-animated masks. Those masks would cover your face just about to above your jawline and they always came with a beard, which as you can understand was a bit of a problem <laughs> for some of our females. On the other hand, there weren't that many females doing the work, you know, in the field um, where these masks were, were being worn. But we knew we couldn't stop there. It wasn't sufficient. That mask didn't, it didn't animate, it didn't move. Your eyelids blinked and your mouth was your mouth, but the rest of it was a rigid, mask sounds like a school play level yeah technology you saw the mask that kanye west was photographed wearing recently it was yeah, that was bad it was better than that that was attention drawing so so uh you went with cia director webster i did and he's and he slipped you through secret service at the gate yep and what were you disguised as one of my employees was leaving her name, I guess I can say her name was Becky, and Becky left me her face. Uh, we had to build it on build it on something. I liked very much the fact that Becky was kind of cute, so I was going to look fairly good. Uh, this mask completely animated. I could chew on a pencil. I could talk to the president. I could do almost anything wearing the mask. Uh, I had a great hairdo. I was very proud to walk in the White House looking like that. Hmm. And, and what did she look like? What, how different was she from you? Oh, just a, an entirely different face. With disguise, everything has to be additive. So she could not have a smaller nose. She, her face was bigger than mine. Her nose is a little bigger than mine. Her, her forehead was a little broader than mine. And her hair was fabulous. So I got all of those accoutrements when I got the, when I got the, the mask. Uh, I wanted to keep that mask when I retired, but they, of course, wouldn't let me. So uh, you got into the Oval Office with uh, President Bush and CIA Director Webster. And what happened? Well, there was a semicircle around his uh, around the front of the desk. It was like a, a horseshoe. And Brent Scowcroft was there. Bob Gates was there. Uh, John Sununu was there. A couple of others. And I was to go first. That was the plan. Go first. And then I'm going to leave first because they were going to do the PDB. I didn't need to sit through that. The daily brief. So I so I told the president, you know, who had been our, our DCI at one point and who we had worked with. I took him some eight by tens of him in disguise to sort of warm him up to the subject. He liked the pictures. I said, well, we've gotten a lot better since you left, sir. And I'm, I, wa I want to show you the latest, the best thing we've got today. So he's looking around my chair like, well, where's your bag of, of stuff? I said, so I'm going to take it off. And I got ready to, you know, do what we were calling the Tom Cruise peel. And he, he stopped me and he said, no, no, hold on. Don't take it off yet. And he got up and came over and looked. 
really closely. He's like looking for a zipper. Well, he's looking for the edges. Where does it stop and where do I start? Mm -hmm. You couldn't tell. He went, sat down and said, okay, take it off. I took it off. John Sununu almost dropped to the floor because he hadn't (laughs) been paying attention. He had no idea that I was going to remove my face. (laughs) Great story. So can you think offhand of one of the wildest disguises you ever uh, deployed against the enemy, against the Russians or Chinese or whoever? Well, I have to tell you that I wasn't doing the deployment, typically. I was building something for a case officer. That's what I meant. Case officer, yeah. yeah. Going to Moscow, and we would train him. We'd walk him up and down our hallways. We'd take him out in cars. We'd take him out with our own surveillance team for training. But when it got right down to it, he had to he had to use it and wear it. I think one of the most brilliant operations, um, Dan Hoffman put it in his book, The Billion Dollar Spy. It's the opening scene where a case officer and another case officer, they're driving through Moscow. Uh, their two wives are in the back seat. Of course, one of them has a birthday cake in her lap and uh, they need to get the passenger out the door. That's the whole point. They take a right turn. They've got surveillance, but surveillance is pretty relaxed. They take another right turn. And in that moment, the second turn, the case officer steps out of the car. The wife picks up the birthday cake and hands it through the, the seats. The driver puts it on the passenger seat, hits a button and a dummy pops up that looks exactly like the man who just left. The man who mm-hmm. just left looks like an old Russian pensioner, and he's kind of walking down the street. So surveillance drives by him, still sees two male figures in the front seats, and they follow them all night. It was called the $2 billion spy because the work that that agent was doing and what he was giving to us was one of the biggest hauls the United States government ever made in terms of espionage. We got It's a great story. We got Soviet radar years before they built it. We were able, the Pentagon was able to build countermeasures to it before their production stuff came off the line. It was beautiful. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because the new biometric hurdles to uh, crossing borders and so on, closer checks at airports. And of course, China has deployed a notoriously facial recognition technology. How do you defeat that with disguises? I've been to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, uh, which is like a highly guarded fortress with lots of concrete plazas around it. Very difficult to sneak someone in and out of that place without being recognized, especially with the new technology. What can you what can you tell us about that? Well, one of the things I have to start with is that I don't actually know what they're doing as I should. I shouldn't know what they're doing. Because Um, you're out of the agency now. I don't have a need to know anymore. But I can make some deductions, I think, because because I can imagine if we were facing a challenge like that. You know, the idea of facial recognition started with Casey asking Tony Mendez at one point. He had just seen the, the film Goldfinger. And they could do facial recognition in the movies. And he Casey said to Tony, can we do that? And Tony said, no, sir. And he said, well, let's get some people on it. And Tony, who was not a fool, just pivoted to DARPA and said, could you guys get to work on that, please? Which part, defeating facial recognition or developing facial recognition technology? Developing it so that we could understand it, probably so we could defeat it would be, mm-hmm. would be the approach. So the fact that the agency lets me talk about masks publicly when they, when they never did before, 
this is within the last three, four years, makes me think they're not using masks, or at least they're not using the masks that I'm talking about, not using the materials, not using that technology, but they're clearly having to use something. You know, mm -hmm. you, you redesign your operations based on what what's the challenge that you're facing. When, when we were working in Moscow, the challenge was 50,000 KGB officers following us every minute. What we did about that was we started switching people around. So they thought they were following us. They were following someone who looked exactly like us. We were over there putting down a drop, picking up a, a, a drop, putting up a signal. So you change your operational MO based on what, what the threat you're facing. Those cameras are going to, yeah, they're going to make it really hard. It means you can't use connect along wigs anymore. If you're using a wig, you've got to use a, a real hair wig and they're expensive. It means you're not going to be mm -hmm. using probably prostheses uh, add-ons because they're going to show up depending on the light that, that the, that's emanating from those cameras. So you're going to stay with you, the structure of your face, but you can still do all kinds of things inside your mouth. You can have a dental mm -hmm. facade that basically changes the entire look of your um, of your face. Like like Marlon Brando in The Godfather. We took that on board. We didn't want to use oranges, but there are things called plumpers that just fit in below your teeth and they push, push the tissue of your face around. Or we change your teeth so radically that you really don't want to smile. It's like the before in one of those ads on TV. You know, before I got my teeth straightened, this is what I look like. Now, let's assume that the Chinese have facial recognition data on every American embassy official that comes into the country and many private American private industry people and so on, because they've got a surveillance state going. So if, if someone uh, emanated from the embassy, an American case officer or CIA officer trying to accomplish a mission uh, in, in a disguise that the Chinese did not have, that would uh, alert them also. So disguises are really problematic, a problematic challenge now for CIA. Another approach to that though, might be that the case officer is not emanating from the embassy. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's their main focal point, if that's where it all begins, maybe that's not where it all begins today. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to keep rearranging the circumstances on the ground until you arrive at something where, where you can make it work. And just one more point. When we were working with surveillance in Moscow, we were working out in Hollywood with some magic builders, the people that do the deceptions and illusions, the people that make things appear and disappear. Uh, and we took some lessons from them on how, how do you do that? How do you force people to not believe what they're seeing or to believe what is clearly impossible? And they showed us how to set up. I said, you call it an operation. We call it a performance. And the first thing you have to know is, where's your stage? What I'm saying is your stage, those concrete plazas outside of the American embassy, maybe not. There's no, there's nowhere to go there. Maybe your stage is over here. Uh, and then they, the second piece of it is, where's your audience? Is it those facial recognition cameras? Or is it something else? Is it, is it foot, foot surveillance? Is it, what is it? You have to know where your stage is. You have to know where your audience is. And then you go. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. So uh, uh, that's a big challenge. So uh, do you know of, of uh, evidence of the Chinese and the Russians also using disguises as 
uh, uh, as uh, inventively as you did? We never saw such evidence. Uh, we could see new Russian officers coming into Washington, D.C. for assignments. And they would restyle themselves. They'd been here before and they would, you know, have a new hairdo and new glasses and maybe they grow a beard, but nothing really radical. But then keep in mind, they had no need for disguise like we did. They were not in this pressure cooker, in this suffocating embrace of the FBI. The FBI doesn't do that. The FBI doesn't follow you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. Moscow mm -hmm. was an, a one-off, an absolutely unique situation. And now it may be Moscow and Russia and China, I mean, together. Maybe, maybe the two of them are mirroring each other. But in a normal circumstance, foreign diplomats or whatever coming to the United States don't need to take the extreme measures that we were forced to take in Moscow. Mm -hmm. But if Russia were sending, and, and they certainly are, if Russia was sending agents into China, uh, they would need disguises. And, and vice versa, Chinese would need disguises in Russia. I mean, we can't assume we're the only ones that do this. Now that China has stepped up and probably has, has parity with, with Russia, it'd be interesting to see who's, who's more advanced. You're probably right. They treat each other like we treated Moscow. And maybe, maybe they will be doing exactly what you're talking about. But in my career, in the time I was at the agency, no other, no other foreign intelligence service that we knew of, that we had evidence of, used disguise the way we did. No, I assume that during your time that we shared disguise technology with our closest allies, the Brits, uh, to start with. Did they like the idea? Or was that, is this a really just an American thing? You know, the Brits, the Brits. You know, Hollywood and all that. Yeah, the Brits were always, I mean, they were always a special category of, of liaison. I mean, it was a special account. And we did share a lot of things with them. I know we, in OTS, I started as a, a, a photo operations officer. I, I was all about cameras the first half of my career. And we had those cameras in, in, in Mont Blanc pens. We had cameras in big lighters. We had little tiny cameras in all kinds of things. We just had one person making them. We couldn't find an optical house in the United States that could recreate this little camera that was one of the biggest guns we had in the Cold War. No one sure. could make it. So we, we gave the blueprints for the camera to the British and we said, can you find someone? And they could not. That was, hmm. that was a very exquisite piece of equipment. We wouldn't share that with anybody else in the world. We shared it with the Brits though. But to your question, to my knowledge, they were not particularly interested in our disguise work. <laughs> because they're Brits. <laughs> We could do a whole show on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my brief, brilliant career as a spy uh, with the Army years ago, I used a Minox. Uh, was that the go-to camera during your time? That's what I started with. It was, um, it was an operational camera uh, for document copy, and it also worked great if you were skiing, because if you fell as often as I did, you wouldn't have <laughs> the camera, and the camera wouldn't hurt you. The Minox, yeah, it was non-compromising. It was uh, commercially available. Film was out there. It, it was initially, it was like the baseline that everything else kind of started started from. Just for uh, listeners who are not as seeped in espionage as we are, these miniature cameras are used. You know, they've probably seen it in the movies to copy documents because 
say a Soviet spy working for us, needed to copy aerodynamic uh, blueprints and so on, had to do it fast and secret uh, in an office someplace. So uh, they use these little cameras to copy these documents. And, and then they, they were often reduced to what we call micro dots, really tiny, tiny, tiny uh, uh, pictures the size of a tick uh, or smaller uh, and disguise them and put them in old magazine uh, and books and so on to slip them out of the country. It was a fascinating time. You glue them on top of a period at the end of a sentence. It was an eight by 10 page of text and you could, you could send it to your agent that way. The thing with the Minox and, and what pushed us to keep moving forward was it took two hands and it made a noise. We wanted one hand and we wanted total silence. And that's what we mm-hmm. got with our, with our pen. You just held your pen and one by one shot them off. It, it automatically advanced. That's really a James Bond stuff. Yeah, uh, so. It was. Q. So were you Q? I was in Q. I wasn't Q. We had we had several wonderful directors of OTS. The the one the one uh, that I OTS we should say Office of Technology. Office Support. of Technical Service. And uh, the last Service, director yeah. that that I know of was Bob Wallace, and he was a fabulous guy and a wonderful. Uh, he was an operations officer running this office that supported operations. He was, he was the, the flip side of Murphy's Law. He was the right guy in the right place with the right skills. You were, speaking of skills, you were doing photography, that was your thing, and then you got into disguises. You, did you just uh, glom, glom onto that because, you know, it was such a gas, was that it? It's, it's, a, it's an odd story. It's, um, being a woman doing what I was doing, working overseas in the Office of Technical Service was uncommon. Rare. And uh, uh, there weren't many women working anywhere in operations. I was loving my job, my career in, in photography, uh, traveling the world, training agents how to use all kinds of interesting cameras. But I went to the, uh, I have to call it the subcontinent. They won't let me ever get any more specific. And I just fell in love with with everything there. I wanted an assignment there. I wanted to live there and uh, came back and talked to my career management officer, who was Tony Mendez. And I said, how do I how do I get out there? That's what I want to do. I want to live there and work there and travel from there. And he said, he said, what about your husband? I said, well, he'll go. Um, and so um, Tony said, you know, there, there is a disguise job coming open. There's nothing in photo. I said, so make me a disguise officer. I wanted to do that so badly that I, I did, a, I did a, a 90 degree turn in the middle of my career and went into a year and a half of full-time training and went out there as a disguise officer with a backup of uh, photography. So they got two for the price of one. Now, uh, Tony, your, your late husband, he, of course, was the, uh, his, his rescue of American diplomats from Iran uh, became a major motion picture, which I've seen 10 times. I love, everybody loves it, uh, called Argo. You said to me the other day when we were talking that uh, the hardest part of Argo was not rescuing the diplomats. It was getting approval from all these various branches of the uh, government, CIA, State Department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you think, uh, from your casual conversations with other former colleagues, do you think the uh, the agency is as daring now 
uh, or the government, I should say, not just the agency. The, the government is, is as daring now as it was back in your day? It's probably comparing apples to oranges because it's all changed so much. The geography has changed. The technology has changed. The options are, are uh, different. When we were there, and, and that was through, um, through the mid-90s, there was still an appetite for taking a risk. There were also situations where, where you had to come up with a solution. What we used to say, there was a banner hanging over our office written in invisible ink, and it said, desperation is the mother of invention. Not original, <laughs> but it was true. We had to figure out how to, how to rescue those people. Well, Tony did. And he came up with an idea that was so far-fetched that he could sell it. The fact was he, he was grounded in Hollywood. He knew, he knew a lot of people in LA. He knew John Chambers, who, who did all the, the makeup for the movies, Planet of the Apes. He knew the, uh, the, the people that worked in deception and illusion. He had lots of resources out there. And the idea of disguising six American diplomats as a Hollywood location scouting party wasn't as far crazy as some people thought. But his job was to convince them of that. And when he took that idea to old Soviet East European division, where they called the chiefs of those, those divisions barons, and they, they didn't mean it nicely, these were big, strong, type A personality guys, and said, hey, I know, let's call them a Hollywood location scouting crew to talk the number of people into that that he that he did took some uh, some work, some work, <laughs> and at the end of the day, it was the only thing that the U.S. government did that worked. Nothing else. When they sent those helicopters into the desert and tried to tried to rescue, um, nothing else worked. Yeah, it was terrible. Ups and downs, as as is always the case in U.S. intelligence operations, or any intelligence operations for that matter. John, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you again. You're, you're a great storyteller, and I'm sure we'll find reason to have you back on the Spy Talk podcast. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Loved it. That was John Mendez, who retired as the CIA's Chief of Disguises. Very interesting to hear about yet another way in which technology is impacting spycraft. Well, we're really hammering that beat. We've covered about every angle on spycraft for the last several months since we've been doing this. And uh, I suspect, given the new biometric hurdles and all that stuff, that we'll be back to the story again. I know we will. And a reminder, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Please do so. Follow us on Twitter. And coming up, a mystery involving a nuclear scare. Stay with us. What could be more terrifying than a nuclear bomb in a U.S. city? In the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, there was intelligence saying that was exactly what we were facing. The incident has been very lightly reported, and when historian and journalist Garrett Graff tried to learn more, he was rebuffed. 
So he used his deep knowledge of counterterrorism and national security to write a novella called Dragonfire, Four Days That Almost Changed America, about how events might have unfolded in October of 2001. The core of this story is true, and it's a, it was an Afghan source uh, of the CIA's that was codenamed Dragonfire, and who reported that Al Qaeda had successfully smuggled a uh, stolen nuclear device into New York City, and uh, it was uh, this was the worst case scenario for U.S. officials in the wake of 9/11. Um, you know, this is what people had been worried about, that a terror group would possess a, a nuclear weapon, um, that it would exist already inside a, a U.S. city. And so the U.S. government um, actually spun up one of its most secret teams in the U.S. government known uh, it's a Department of Energy team known as NEST, the Nuclear Emergency Search Team. Um, and these are the, you know, highly trained, you know, SEAL Team 6 Delta Force operators of the Energy Department. To and they trace are secret because I remember super. when I was reporting for CNN trying to embed with the NEST team and almost every agency in government was really eager to show you what they were doing to protect the nation. The NEST teams, mm, 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 there's no way they were going to cooperate. Exactly. And so these are the people that we send in to, you know, do what their name says, search for nuclear devices in the midst of a, a terror plot um, or, or something like that. And so this team was actually sent and deployed in the fall of 2001 to New York City, to Manhattan, to search for um, the possibility that Al-Qaeda had a stolen nuclear device in Manhattan. And this plot, um, the, the U.S. government didn't tell the New York City government at the time. No one ever told Rudy Giuliani, the mayor at the time, that there was this uh, there was this plot that there was this secret team searching for a nuclear device in New York City. Um, and um, it, it this didn't come out in for a couple of years. Um, and did they uh, ever find one? Well, so we don't think so. Um, but part of Nest's uh mantra or philosophy is that it never confirms or denies whether it found uh, a nuclear device um, during any particular deployment. Um, so you're, you're a seasoned reporter. You dug into national security in a very serious way. Was it difficult for even you to get information about what happened back then? Well, and so this was where this was sort of the genesis of this project. It was always held up as this plot that like no one took seriously. It didn't amount to anything. We knew from day one there wasn't a real nuclear device there. Um, and uh, I've always been curious about it. I wrote it about it in a book I did on the FBI 12 years ago, you know, at this sort of couple paragraph length that this information had existed until then. Um, and then a couple of years ago, set out to say, you know, hey, like 15 years have passed since this happened. Like, let me see if I can dig up some more information on it. And let me see, you know, if I can get some people to talk about it. Um, 
And in exactly the way you were just saying, um, I got a really weird response. You know, Nest is completely impenetrable as an organization. Um, they, uh, you know, they don't talk about their work. They don't like to highlight their own existence. Um, and then when I started to talk to other intelligence officers and FBI officials and White House officials, about that incident, um, I kept getting sort of weird stone walls and uh, people refusing to talk about it. And, you know, you know, from covering these topics, like you sort of reach a point where, you know, like you just sort of something feels off in the answers that you're getting back from people. And, and I couldn't get to the bottom of this. I couldn't figure out what actually happened. And so set out to write this story of what might have happened during that plot. So why do you think they don't want to talk about decades later? So I, I legitimately don't know. Um, and that was part of what was so puzzling to me was here was this plot that the US government has told us for years uh, was uh, amounted to nothing and was a obvious false alarm. But at the same time, it's one of the only known times since 9-11 that the U.S. has deployed this Nest team to search in a in a U.S. city to, you know, to respond to what they what might be an unfolding plot. And so it made me wonder, is there more to this plot? Is there more to this incident than we've been told? Or was it an embarrassment? Did it turn out that the intelligence was bad and it was all a goose chase? Yes, although, you know, that was what most things were in the wake of 9-11. I mean, sort of a big part of that fall was this sort of switch in the U.S. government's mentality to treating everything as if it might be real. Um, you know, Vice President Cheney nicknamed this the one percent doctrine. Um, you know, the idea that if some if there's a one percent chance that something is true, then the U.S. government needs to treat it as if it's as if it's likely. One of the other things that has always attracted me to this particular incident, this Dragonfire plot in the fall of 2001, is also my understanding from talking to people in the U.S. government over the years that this was part of what really helped drive forward the U.S. government and the Bush administration's push against Iraq. And, and what I mean by that is that this incident, along with some other WMD threats in the fall of 2001, made clear to the U.S. government that there really isn't a good answer once a WMD exists on U.S. soil. That, uh, that we don't actually have very good options for trying to find a, you know, improvised nuclear device um, once it gets to U.S. soil. And so we need to take seriously stopping terrorists from getting WMDs in the first place. And that that was a big part of why the Bush administration went after Iraq and Saddam Hussein. So let's talk about the Nest team's capabilities. Yes. Um, then and now, actually. So if they had indeed been able to find this weapon, which was reportedly, what, a 10 kiloton, potentially former Soviet weapon. Yeah. Um, if they had found it, would they have been able to disarm it? Um, in theory, yes. They do have the ability for 
what are called sort of render safe teams, uh, you know, who specialize in understanding how other countries or improvised nuclear device devices work and sort of what you would need to do to disable them, d disarm them, render them safe. Um, and so, you know, we like to think that if they can find a device, they can, uh, they can render it safe. Um, and, you know, this is a team that works very much in the background of uh, our, our country on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, we, you will actually see, you will see their helicopters um, over Washington, D.C. from time to time, because a lot of what they do is these regular surveys of major U.S. cities to study what you might call sort of the background normal radiation in a normal city so that, you know, if and when they get deployed to New York City or, or Washington, D.C., and their helicopters are up in the air searching for radiological signatures, they can say, oh, OK, like this, this is anomalous. This is normal. This is, you know, this is a regular dentist office. You know, it's probably not a nuke. And they don't just do it over cities. They also do it in preparation for large events like exactly. Super Bowl and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. in case there's any incident, they'll be able to figure out if it's unusual or it isn't. Another thing you mention um, in, in Dragonfire is the possibility of containment. And I was surprised that we would have the capability to contain the blast from an actual nuclear weapon. Yeah, and, and I think containment is... Um, you know, containment can mean a bunch of different things in, in this structure. You know, it's not that we have like a box that can, you know, absorb a full nuclear blast. Um, containment can also mean, you know, helping to stop the spread of radiation to help contain the damage. And some of this also has to do with, uh, you know, we have this picture from the end of the Cold War of what... Uh, a nuclear, you know, attack on New York City would look like, you know, what global thermonuclear war looks like. And that's not what an improvised nuclear device going off looks like. And that's an important distinction to draw for people is that, you know, that you can be talking about something that's actually like more of a dirty bomb than it is a you know, Hiroshima or Nagasaki type but, device. But even a dirty bomb, I remember seeing the mapping of what might happen if a dirty bomb were detonated in down in the mall in Washington, yes. D.C. And it was a pretty big area that was going to be contaminated for a very long time, not to mention yeah. the panic effect. And, and I think that's true. And that was really one of the things that there was a lot of concern about, you, you know, as you remember in D.C., in the wake of 9-11 was, you know, this, the, the damage from a dirty bomb in, you know, going off on Capitol Hill or by the White House or, or something like that. At the time these events took place, our nuclear detection capabilities were not great. Um, if you went to a port in the United States, for instance, yes, incoming cargo containers went through screening devices. But there was real concern that something that was shielded with lead wouldn't be detected. And things like kitty litter would set off the alarms. Are our screening capabilities any better now than they were decades ago? So yes and no. Um, you know, sort of part of this, the, the procedures and the protocols and the processes are much better now. Um, you still have a lot of these same false alarms just because that is what 
um, you know, the one of the things that people really struggled with after 9-11 were clay tiles. Clay tiles sort of have a bunch of background radiation that they put out. And at first glance, uh, the signature of a shipping container carrying clay tiles on a, a cargo ship looks pretty similar. Um, and that's always, in, to a certain extent, going to be the case. The challenge is, you know, what do you do when those alarms go off? And right now we have, a, in, in theory, at least a much better set of procedures to handle that now. And better detection too. So exactly, that, yeah. Okay. Um, when the Soviet Union came apart, the United States worked pretty extensively with Russia and with the former Soviet republics to try and secure nuclear weapons to make sure they didn't fall into the wrong hands. What's the status of those efforts now, particularly in light of the increasing tensions with Russia? Yeah, and this is actually a really interesting topic, um, and, and I'm glad you asked about this because this was, um, I, I did some reporting on this last year for Politico and was surprised by the answer, which is, you know, the problem that you're sort of talking about, we shorthanded for, you know, a quarter century after the collapse of the Soviet Union as loose nukes. I mean, this idea that, you know, there would be these unguarded warehouses in the former Soviet Union or former Soviet republics where, you know, terrorists or, you know, Muammar Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein would just, you know, drive a truck up and drive off with a, you know, a couple of nuclear bombs or, you know, sort of the James Bond style threat of the, you know, megalomaniacal mad scientist angry at not being paid, um, you know, would just walk off the job with a suitcase nuke in and, you know, carry it into New York City and demand ransom. And, you know, as far as we know, you know, that threat never actually really materialized. And the U.S. government put enormous effort into uh, securing the, those weapons, um, helping other countries secure them. You know, there were times when, you know, quite literally the U.S. government was shipping winter clothing to, uh, you know, Russian security guards in the 1990s. So and, you know, helping to retire, you know, repair barbed wire fences. I mean, super basic stuff. And now when you talk to experts in this field, people don't really worry about loose nukes anymore in the way that they did, um, you know, in the 90s or, you know, in the decade after 9-11. What Why they not? worry about is actually the highly controlled nuclear weapons that it, that it, in fact, the the biggest threat that you know when you talk to nuclear uh, security people today is is basically just countries that have nuclear weapons and the you know that we sort of still have poor procedures for deconflicting um, amid moments of tension that you know, that Iran's, uh, you know, nuclear program is advancing. North Korea doesn't have great security protocols around its nuclear weapons. You know, they worry and about- China is growing its arsenal. It, right, that China's growing its arsenal and, you know, the, the, the chance that some of, you know, that you might have global flashpoints sort of tip over into nuclear exchanges- um, you know, particularly, for instance, along, you know, the Indian uh, Pakistan border, that that's, um, you know, that is still an area, a region of the world that, you know, most people say it's rather remarkable that we actually haven't had a nuclear exchange along that border yet. 
Well, just because those tensions have increased potentially or the dangers increased, why would you be less worried about loose nukes? There's still uh, a possibility. Just because the, the programs in the 1990s worked. There also was concern back in the day about the number of unemployed Russian scientists with nuclear know-how that were out there looking for work and that they might get hired by uh, another nation or potentially a terrorist group. Is that still a worry? Um, I think it's I think that the answer is sort of always, but again, less. In the pantheon of threats that we're potentially facing, having written Dragonfire, I'm wondering how worried you are as a part, you know, separate and apart from what intelligence officials may be saying. How big a threat do you think a nuclear bomb or a dirty bomb might be? So I still think relatively small. Um, you know, I'm, I, I fall into the category of people who, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and, you know, luckily here in the fall of 2021, I'm less worried about this than I was in 2017 or 2018. Um, but, you know, I think the much greater nuclear threat to the, to the United States and to the world on a daily basis is, you know, North Korea firing off a nuclear tipped missile, you know, aimed at a U.S. city. And that, again, not necessarily that North Korea is going to try to launch a surprise first strike against L.A. It's, you know, I worry about the cycle of events that could lead to um, North Korea feeling like it was under attack and then um, launching a, a, a nuclear strike. That was Garrett Graff, an historian and journalist and author of several books on national security and counterterrorism. His latest work, Dragonfire, will release December 1st on the online reading subscription service, Scribd. You know, I've been uh, fascinated by this Dragonfire story uh, forever, it seems, uh, going back 15 years. And uh, uh, Garrett Graff is a very, very accomplished investigative reporter, especially on the Homeland Security beat. It seems to me that if he can't get to the bottom of it, if the government's sitting on documents, still it won't release. He's got to wonder what's really going on there. And I also really wonder about the intelligence that uh, incited this fear of a nuclear bomb uh, in the U.S. There's really a lot of debate over whether Al-Qaeda really had the uh, ability to get a bomb. Uh, but that's a dispute that goes back for years. We don't need to revisit it here. But thanks for doing that, Gene. It's a and Garrett for coming on the show because it was a fascinating interview. I thought so too. Mm -hmm. A reminder, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, follow us on Twitter, and tune in again for another episode of Spy Talk. I'm Gene Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us yet again. Hope you have a really great Thanksgiving holiday. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.